Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the voice and producer and somebody who just likes to help out Brett Boone with this podcast. He is, by the way, a golden glover, a silver slugger, an all-star. Ladies and gentlemen, Brett Boone. What up, Brett? Hey, Danny. How you doing, man? Brett, I am... Every time we've been doing these podcasts, it used to just be you and me. We would talk about your golf game. We would talk about how much you just eat orange roughy fish. And now, every time we crack the mic, it's one more impressive guest after another. I didn't even know you knew all these people. Yeah, in, in a past life. In a past life. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm excited to, to catch up with our guest today. Uh, you know, it's been a while. It's been it's a while. Been a so while. And the guest that we are speaking about is a 12-time All-Star, a World Series champion, the 1995 NL MVP, three-time Golden Glove Award winner, nine-time Silver Slug Award winner, and a member of the 2012 Baseball Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, Barry Larkin. What up, Barry? Hey, hey. How you guys doing? Hey, Lark. <laughs> Man, this is. Are you still using the seven iron the whole round? Dan, no, I don't know if I told you, but this man he kind of taught me how to play golf. He taught me how to finesse a seven iron from two fifty in. Wow! And he also showed me how to use a a, a seven iron from twenty five yards in. He told so me he. he I'm assuming you don't do that anymore. He told me he won't even teach me how to play, so that's even more impressive. I've been asking him for Bro. tips. He won't teach me anything. Well, every you time know. he would swing, every time <laughs> he would swing, we would just go pork. Uh-huh. Well, Mark, and, I, and I'm going to tell, uh, yeah, it, it, we're starting off that way. Here, here's the here's this for the for the audience out there, the fans out there. Lark comes, you know, we we. Uh, when we were playing together in Cincinnati, we played together for five years and uh, we live right across the lake from each other. So Lark picks up golf and, and this is Larkin playing golf. Always, it, Lark's pretty much good at everything he does. Freaky athlete, but we'd go out there, Barry tee it up, never bet, wasn't a gambler. And he'd tee it up and we'd be on a par three, hit one on the lake. And then he'd, he'd put another ball on his tee, hit it on the green, two putt. Hey, Barry, what'd you get? Three. I said, what do you mean you got a three? I said, you hit it in the lake. He goes, I don't count those. No, I don't count those. And at that point, I thought, you know, as long as you're not gambling, you put that whatever you want. But uh, you, are you still, you still, you still playing? You playing much? Uh, occasionally. Occasionally. I, I have to say to have, I have gotten much better, but I don't, you know, it's a lot of time out there and, you know, I guess with COVID, there's plenty of time to get out there and play golf, but I just, you know, it's just other ways just to spend that four or five hours of the day. So I don't, I don't play as much as I used to, but you know, it's, it's cool. I went, I went from, you know, back when, when we were in Florida together, I, oh man, in the off season, I'd be playing four or five times a week. I might play two or three times a month. I'm getting a little older. My back, I've got a, I've got a, you know, if I've got a two or three day tournament or something, I've got a, uh, I got to be careful. I, I I actually have to warm up and prepare, and uh, man, it's different for me. But that's that's what's getting older. Anyway, diving right into it, uh, Barry Larkin. Um, we we're teammates for five years in Cincinnati. This this is the man here. I came over from from the American League in a trade uh, from the Seattle Mariners, and and Barry ended up being my double play combination for the next five years. And, 
he was a guy that kind of was that guy. When I got to the National League, he kind of took me under his wing. He kind of figured this is going to be my second baseman for a while. So and you kind of taught me the ropes down to down to uh, how much do I tip clubbies on the road? Because Barry at that time was was an established player. I was just kind of trying to get established. And, and I always appreciate that Barry kind of took me under his wing. And I'll tell the story a little bit, Lark, to start it off, Al. Even after my first season, and and it probably helped that I hit 320 my first year in Cincinnati. So so you knew I was gonna uh, my contract was gonna be you know probably a little better than the year before. But remember when I said, "Lark, you got to help me, man. I want to get the that first car that I wanted to get." And you're like, "Yeah, I'll help you out." And he loaned me some money, but he kind of knew uh, Brett's probably gonna get you know a little bump in his contract, so you know where to get it. But no, on on a serious note you were kind of the guy that that kind of helped me when I was first establishing myself and uh, we ended up playing together for five years. And it was, you know, I, I think, and, and I'll speak to this and I'll allow you to speak to it is, you know, we, we both went on from there, you before and after I left to have several different combinations in the middle. And I had some good ones along the way, but, but what we had for that time, uh, I can't, I can't really explain to people out there. It was almost like, a. It, it, once we took the field, we, we were kind of melted together in the middle. It just kind of, I knew where Barry was. He knew where I was. And, and I watched the games today and, and I watched the combos today. The great ones have that, have that meshing together. They have that camaraderie. And it allows you to play your own game. I, I I knew with you at short, when that ball was hit, I could make, I, I could go for it. I could take risks. I could go for that unbelievable play because I knew I didn't have to be perfect with you. If I just got it in the vicinity, Barry was going to take that that pivot and make that pivot. Where other pl- other police places that I went in my career, I always had good ones, but not necessarily that relationship. And, and there's nothing worse when you got to kind of dumb down your game to kind of say, well, this could be an unbelievable play, but I don't know if my partner can handle this. That's what I remember from our time was I, I, I could trust you to the to a hundred percent and that's really a relief and allows your game to be unbelievable defensively and and i'll let you kind of expand on on what i'm trying to say yeah i, I agree with you 100 percent. i remember the first uh day we were out on the field and i asked you a question i said where do you like the ball and you said it doesn't matter and i said no no seriously do you like to come across the bag do you like it on the back side of the bag and you look at me again and stone faced me and said, it doesn't matter. You know, normally that comes from uh, uh, an older veteran player who has had the experience, but certainly not from a young guy that was still trying to establish himself, which is where you were at that particular time. And I remember uh, that conversation and it was, it wasn't just words. It was really true. And I think that what you're speaking on is the that comfort level, because I believe the fact because I played it with enough players that wanted the ball in a specific area, I felt the pressure of trying to put the ball in that area. I almost felt like I was aiming the ball at that particular time as opposed to just putting it up there and letting you make the play. That was one thing that I always said about playing with a great second baseman, which I consider you to be one of the great second basemen, was all I got to do is put the ball in the vicinity and allow you to make the play. 
I'm not making a double play. I'm putting it up there to allow you, the pivot man, to make the double play. And I felt you felt the same with me. One of the reasons I think that we both were really good is because I felt like we both got to the bag in time to react to the throw, as opposed to what I've seen and what I I played with a few times in my career where a guy was trying to time the throw, get to the bag at the same time to time the throw to make the spectacular or make it look a little better than it actually was. And, you know, so I think that's a, a it was a, a comfort factor. Um, it was a basic thing. And I think, you know, when you do the basic things really well, then your athleticism takes over. I remember you making tremendous athletic plays, throws from all the different angles. And yeah, I remember going out with you. It was you and Pokey Reese that I used to say this to. Let's go out and make some magic. Let's go out and make some stuff happen. And it was like super fun, very comfortable. And I remember this. I remember this also. I was a more veteran of the players when we were out there playing. And you remember Booney when we went from uh, AstroTurf, I think it was, to regular grass, and there were rocks or whatever in the on the field out there, and I was booting balls left and right early in the season. Like April, I had like five errors or something. And I looked at you for a little mental support being my double play partner. <laughs> and, you, and you dropped it. Just catch the ball. You're good. Just catch the ball. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you, it was like, it was almost like I was using the fact that the field was so bad at that time as an excuse. And you were like, don't, 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 don't fall into that. Don't let that happen. And that's amazing. It's amazing that, you know, that conversation, that's what I took from that conversation. You know, there are guys that are leaders in the clubhouse. There's guys that, you know, everyone says, oh, this guy is such a solid player. But, you know, and I was that leader in the club. I was that captain of the team. But I also had times where I was very fragile mentally, and I had to rely on other people. Well, one of those people that I was able to rely on was Boone, not Brett Boone, just Boone. <laughs> and it was this, it was this confidence. It was this exuding confidence. There was this no kind of, uh, no excuse. It was just get the job done. And that's what I, that's what I took from Boone. And that's why I love playing with Boone. I love playing with Aaron as well. Totally different personality, totally different player. But I love playing with you, Brett, because of that boom that you brought to the ballpark every day. Well, I appreciate that. And, and you know, we were different type of players. And, and we, we, we kind of complemented each other very well. I remember watching you play and just – and to this day, probably, you know, we just had Ken Griffey Jr. on a few segments ago. And, and I introed him and I said, uh, you know, I said, this is the best player I ever played with because Junior was the best player I ever played with. But, but when I talk about Lark, I compare you to, I, I see stuff in, in people. I had a young uh, shortstop that I was working with in, in the A's organization. I said, you're like Barry Larkin. I said, you're a freak. You can do things that the rest of us can't do. I don't know how you do it. And, and I don't think any of us do because I watched you play short. And it wasn't textbook short, but when I when I said stuff that to you like that, like Barry, just pick up the ball. You're you're really good, man. I meant it. It's not that I was, you know, I wasn't given false uh, 
confidence to somebody that couldn't handle the job. I, I saw you do things that I don't know how you did it. And I'm going, I don't know how he just made that play, but somehow he got that ball to me on time. It goes back to us turning double plays. And when I said that to you at the very beginning, when you brought it up that just give me the ball, that's all I need. Get me the ball. Because if I got that ball early enough, I, I can do whatever I've got to do. And, and it was different for us because we had guys trying to kill us coming in. Now they've changed the rules. Now they got to slide right into the bag and the whole dynamic of that middle infield, and that middle infield magic's kind of gone away at this at this juncture. You know, I watch these playoff games. You got second baseman playing third base, third baseman turning double plays, and and it's just not the way. Well, I I prefer our way because you're usually your shortstop, and this is for the fans out there. The shortstop is definitely the number one defender on that team at all time. If you can, if you can play short, you can play anywhere on that field. But that second baseman is kind of that shortstop that couldn't play short in the big leagues every day. So we go over to second. But I think with the modern day game, as it's taken away the two best defenders in the middle and kind of just making them another defender with the shifts and all that. Not that who cares what I think. That's just what I'm as a fan now and and as uh, as an observer of the game. That's what I see. What do you think about that? Well, I think what's happened with the game and with players is that there is so much uh, information out there. Uh, and there's a reliance on the information out there that many players don't develop instinct. It's uh, almost like a crutch. It is almost like a crutch. It, it definitely is. However, it is what it is today. And, you know, certainly the players, the way they play the game is a little bit different today. The way they celebrate is definitely different today than it was back in the days that we were playing. The way that they prepare is different today than it was back back in, in, in the days that we were playing. So it's just different. And that doesn't make it right or wrong. It just makes it different. So, you know, I, it, everything kind of happens in a vacuum. Everything kind of happens like everything is timing, right? This day and time and the way that they're playing right now, you know, they do use the shift. So you do see, well, I do see being in player development, guys, not really reading the swings of the hitters as much as, and making their own adjustments based on what they see. I see them, when the hitter comes up, I see them take their hat off and look at the cards, and then they kind of play in that area. And they kind of stay in that area because that's where they were told that they need to play. I think they go there because they're told as opposed to instinctually going there. So I don't think that they really develop as much of a feel for the game that the players did during our time, but that's just the, the sign of the times at this particular time. So it just, it is different and, you know, respected the way it is because it is the way it is. It is. And there's nothing. And and I'm really hesitant because, you know, when I was growing up and, and, you know, I was really close with my grandfather and, and not to pound that drum too much, but I, I remember, you know, being 25, 30 years old and my grandfather waiting for me after a game and him, uh, him always saying, Oh, yo, and, and he'd always go back to his day and, Oh, what the way we did it is the right way. And I thought, Gramps, these players today, they're more physical, they're stronger, they're faster, you know, and I always told myself as a young player, I'm not going to be that guy, <laughs> you know, when I get older to to look at these young kids. And, and now that I've got a son, uh, 
you know, starting his pro career, you know, I look at their, I look at what our era and I, and I appreciate so many things. I look at the generations before us. I, man, I wish a lot of baseball took from those older generations, you know, just that kind of that hard nose lunch pail type attitude. But then I look to the current generation and these guys are, they're get they're more physical than ever. You know, everybody's got ways to improve their bat speed and their speed and, and the pitchers are throwing harder. And I appreciate that. They're really, they're really, uh, putting into the equation the data aspect and and really studying numbers. I think that can be all very beneficial. And I think we can take things from this modern era. I don't know about you, but I, I, I look at the modern day and I think, wow, the technology that's available right at your fingertips, you know, to just have it in my locker before every series, all that Intel. I think it's so awesome, but there is a lot of things from, from our generation or past generations that, that I do miss in the game. And, and like you said, you're, you're not condemning what they're doing. It's their time. This is their game. There's these players of 2020, but it doesn't mean we can't, we can't love uh, certain attributes that come from each and every generation. Well, that's certainly true. And I think you just have to respect, you just have to respect the fact that, you know, guys, back when your grandfather were playing, they were doing it in a certain way. Back when your dad was playing, they were doing it a certain way. Right. When we played, we did it a certain way, and they're doing it a certain way now. What I have seen, and, and you mentioned a crutch earlier, what I've seen is the paralysis through analysis. What I've seen is many of the players kind of information overload or not really knowing how to deal with the information. So, you know, I think it's a fine line. I think all the information, all the technology is great. But at the end of the day, you have to hit the ball. At the end of the day, you have to be in position to catch a, to field the ground ball. At the end of the day, you know, you have to hunt the fastball. You have to have kind of a hunter's mentality as opposed to a, you know, swing until my eyes tell me no, as opposed to, oh, there's a ball, I'll swing at it. You know, so uh, it, it just, there are, there are intangibles that I think apply in just inherent in the game of baseball. I think that, and I mentioned a few of those things. I think you have to have a certain mentality in order to be one of the best players in the game, regardless of what the uh, factors are, regardless of if you have information or if you don't have information. If you don't have heart, you don't have guile. If you don't have stones, if you don't have desire, you have no chance. So, you know, I don't care how much there, how much information it is, there is, you can lead me to water, but you can't make me drink. And that's the case with a lot of these players. A lot of these players get to certain situations or certain levels. And then the question is, how do you get to that next level? Well, that's when the intangibles come in. That's when there are things that you just can't quantify. You know, the heart of a teammate, a grinder. I remember playing with players that were great for the first seven innings. And then the last two innings, all of a sudden they weren't the same player. It's because they didn't have the, the confidence that they can get the job done when the game was perceived to be on the line. So, you know, I think all this information and all the generations, there are some commonalities amongst all of them. And those are the intangibles that you need, regardless of how much information you do have or don't have. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And uh, before we leave that side, of it, let, let's real quick uh, to the, to the fans out there, 
Larkin had the worst glove I've ever seen. Right out of the box, stiff as a board. And that was another thing that we, we were we were so on the same page playing together, but we are so different <laughs> down to the gloves we use. I, I know you didn't like mine, but I remember looking at Barry's glove and going, I can't believe this man can play like this with with this piece of crap. I mean, it was like a piece of wood. And you'd be like, what are you talking about? I, yeah. I said, what, they send it to you? Yeah. You know, most people come to you and I'm sure they come to you. They come to me. I'm sure they come to you all the time. You know, a young kid. Hey, Mr. Larkin, how, how do I break in my glove? Well, son, you, you know, you put some shaving cream in it. You you wrap some tape around, put it in the microwave. Or does Barry say, oh, you just take it out of the box and just use it in game seven? Because that's how I used to do it. It's unbelievable. It's the worst. And mine, you probably think mine's the worst. No, I, I don't think yours is the worst, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I'm telling you, it still happens today. When I, when a player, you know, I'm in player development, so I have my glove out there. Not actually the glove that I use, but the gloves that they have now, because they no longer make my model, the 1440. I used the Wilson 1440 my entire life. But I, I used, I wanted to have a very shallow pocket because I didn't want to catch the ball. I wanted to stop the ball. Right. So I wanted my glove to be flat and like a pancake. And so there are very few people playing this game that like a glove flat and like a pancake. Guys like a pocket. I didn't like the pocket. So I would break my glove in by turning it inside out and stepping on it and making it as flat as possible. And yes, the Wilson gloves came. And it was like one or two days uh, breaking it in the way I liked it, and then they were game ready. That is definitely true, but still right. Today, but do you, you realize that that your gloves weren't broken in? You realize that? Well, I, I mean, they weren't to the traditional sense. I agree. I, I understand, but it's funny because I still today guys will come to me and say, "Hey, Lark, let me see your glove," and then they'll put their hand in my glove and they'll go, "You know." Did, now, these are minor leaguers that have all the respect for me and the fact that I played and, you know, they're out there, see me out there and, you know, and helping them do whatever. So, I mean, so they're, they're like, okay, this is my guy, right? And then they look at me and they go, so uh, did you use this in the game? <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean that I used it in the game? Yeah, I used it in the game. So that's all you need to know right there. But yes, Booney, yes, Booney, I have heard that from so many people. It wasn't oh, pretty, man. but it was effective. It was it was definitely effective. All right, I want to I want to shift gears real quick to stealing bases. And uh, Lark was one of my teammates. I, I played with you know a, a lot of prolific base stealers in my time, and Barry's right there at the top. And and it's not a matter of it wasn't a matter of his speed. He was fast. But it was a matter he you had that uncanny ability and very few I've ever played with habit uh, to at the bottom of the ninth inning. And it's a tie game. And you could almost hold up a sign and said, I'm running in the next two pitches. He knows it. Catcher knows it. And you're not going to catch me. And there's very few guys I've played with that have a knack for it. I think you're born with it. You know, a lot of people have speed. And and if you have speed, that definitely helps. But there's a technique to being, being a big-time base stealer. And I'm talking about when everybody knows 
you're going and you go right in the face of that. Uh, speak a little bit about, uh, about what you used to look for, because that was one thing I didn't have. You know, if they started paying attention to me too much, I'd shut it down. But you were a guy that changed the game, especially late in games, almost like a Ricky Henderson type. You weren't, you didn't have the hundreds, hundred bag seasons like Ricky or, or Tim Raines, but I, you were just as efficient. When you went, you were safe 95% of the time. It, just talk on that a little bit about your thoughts when you got on first and, and we needed a big bag. Well, that was, that was the thing. I, you know, I, I used to call myself kind of the amoeba man. Meaning whatever whatever particular shape that I needed to take or whatever I needed to do specifically, um, I, I tried to do. So for me, that was the challenge. The challenge was certainly still in basis in particular, but I, I felt like I wanted to be the guy to get the ball hit to in the bottom of the ninth inning with the bases loaded or with the winning run or the tying run on third base. Like. I just wanted to be that guy. I've always had that mentality of when the game's on the line, please hit the ball to me. When the game's on the line and I'm on the on bases, I need to get into scoring position. I'm going to steal this base. And you can throw over six, seven, eight times. But when you pick up and throw to the plate on that ninth time, I'm still going to go. So I've had, you know, I've had these talks with guys like Deion Sanders. Um, talks with all the base runners, Ricky Henderson, all the base runners, and they every single one of them told me, the only way you're going to know what you're able to do is, as far as stealing bases is to steal. And I said, yeah, okay. But what does that mean? That means, first of all, you don't steal the base off the catcher. You steal the base off the pitcher. So every time the pitcher, every single time the pitcher's going to throw the ball to the plate, like not every other time, Every single time, I want you, regardless if you're going to steal or not, to get into a habit of making that first movement as if you are going to steal the bake. And, and that, was, that was hugely, hugely important to me because, you know, for me, I felt if I could, if I could get myself into position, I was a big position guy. If I could get myself into position, then... Once I'm in position, I, you know, I can do whatever at that particular point. But I've got I've to work more not just to steal the base. I've got to work more to get in position to be able to steal the base. And I learned that early in my career that regardless if I was going to steal or not, if I got my, my body in the position where I could steal that base, then all I have to do is go. So... That's what I really worked on. And, you know, that wasn't something that I shared with a lot of people, but that was what I worked on. That was the things that I can control because there's so many things that as a baseball player, we can't control. And so, you know, we just have to deal with the fallout, however things happen. The thing I can't control is I can control my body and my thoughts, you know, what, what I'm trying to do. And the one thing that I can do is I can work to get in position. I can work to get in position to hit, I could work in, to get into position to steal a base. I could work to get into position to catch a ground ball. And so for me, that was really kind of the next level when I really truly believed in that approach and I started to apply that approach. That's when I think I became a much more proficient base stealer, a much better hitter, a much better situational hitter, and a much better defender. 
because it was more about getting myself into the fight in a good position as opposed to just going and fight. Getting myself into position to steal a base instead of just stealing the base. Getting myself into position to catch ground ball as opposed to just, you know, arbitrarily catching a ground ball or arbitrarily swinging at a pitch. So it was that kind of focus and that kind of detail I felt that really helped me. So when I got into a situation late in the ball game, I could steal a base. I didn't steal a lot of bases. I did frivolously. I didn't just steal bases. I tried to steal bases when it meant something for the ball club because I wanted to, first of all, stay healthy enough to be out there to play as many games as I could. But, you know, it was like, how do I impact this game? And when can I impact that game? So that was kind of the key to my, I guess, my success was really working to try to get myself into position. Well, and I think that was, you know, that was what I was getting at is, yeah, I played with those guys that, that have the numbers at the end of the year. Oh, I stole X amount of bases. But those weren't the real base. And, and, and you know, I won't name names. But then I played with guys that were really uh, proficient at when they stole bases. Yep. And, and, and that's the difference, you know. Uh, that wasn't your whole bag. That wasn't your whole cup of tea is, is Barry, the, the, the base stealer. And, and I feel you when you talk about, you know, I, I had to keep my body healthy. You start racking up 100 bags at the – and play in shortstop, probably the most demanding physical position, you know, wanting to be out in the field for 150 to 160 games a year. It takes a, it takes a toll on you after a while, but yeah, that's, that's the point I was getting at is anybody can put up the back, but it's, when do you run? You know, can you, are you running when that everything's on the line? I had an interesting talk with uh, Jeff Bagwell about it because Jeff wasn't a, known as this base, big base dealer. And I'd ask him, I said, Jeff, you couldn't beat me in a race. I said, but you get 25 bags here. He goes, Brett, I go when that pitcher is so worried about the hitter, he's not thinking about me. That's when I run. And it made perfect sense. It was the simplest answer I could get from him. And it made a lot of sense. So that's where I was going on. Let's go to the uh, 1990 Reds. You guys won the world series. Yeah. Kind of, kind of Eric uh, Davis in his prime. You had the, the nasty boys you went into, you know, and I was just, we just had Lou on and Lou was talking to that team. And what it was like for you going into that season and, and going up kind of kind of against a Goliath of a team in in the uh, the nineties or nineteen ninety Oakland A's with the Bash Brothers and you had Eck and Stu was was their number one starter. Tell me a little bit about that nineteen nineties Reds team. Well, it's really interesting because uh, Lou Pinella comes in uh, in the off season after the eighty nine uh, season, which we really struggled. Uh, Pete Rose, that was the year Pete Rose got, uh, uh, I guess he got uh, banned from baseball or he had suspended at that particular time. And he was the manager the first three or four years, took over um, that last half of 89. But um, we had finished in second place for most of those years. I got called up in 86, so 86, 87, 88, we were in second place. And Marshot was our owner and she was talking about how she was tired of coming in second place. She wanted to make a big splash, a big impact. And so she went to the New York Yankees and brought in this wild, crazy, uh, maniac guy, Lou Pinella. And normally when a manager comes in, he reaches out to his veteran players and talks to them a little bit about 
you know, what, uh, you know, who he needs to stroke, personalities on the team. Um, you know, is there anything that, you know, just, just kind of fitting in? Well, Lou was none of that. I don't know if Lou talked to anyone and everyone was calling me that offseason, like, Mark, who is this Lou Pinella guy? And I just happened to be in Cincinnati when he signed and during his press conference, I got a chance to meet him. Um, but he, he wasn't, there was no real warm and fuzzies for him coming into Cincinnati. He came to Cincinnati and he, one of the first few uh, team meetings that he had, Lou said, I don't like losing. I don't accept losing and we're not going to lose. And then uh, we went out and started our 1990 campaign. And one of the first days we had a, a team function, like a team workout or a team uh, 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 thing on the field uh, where the whole team was together. Uh, team fundamental is what we call it. And one of the outfielders, I think it was Paul O'Neill, ends up throwing the ball to the wrong base or missing the cutoff man. And Lou Pinella absolutely loses his mind. I mean, just cussing up a storm, just spitting all over himself, hair just flying everywhere, and just losing his mind over a simple miscutoff man or either throwing to the wrong base or just a, a physical mistake, but a physical mistake that came about because of a mental mistake. And uh, I remember after that uh, saying, well, shoot, I, I'm not making that mistake. I don't want this fool going off on me like that, right? And uh, it, was, it was amazing how we reacted to that. Because after that, and he told me years later that that was his teaching point, or was the time for him to make a point. And he made it. Um, after that, we were pretty much on point mentally. Now, physically, did we make errors? Absolutely, we did. But mentally, those were the things that he was maniacal about. He was, we're not going to lose games because mentally we're not there. We might lose games because physically someone's better, but we're not going to make mental mistakes that are going to lead to more, more, more outs for the other team, the opposition, and we're just not, that's just not going to happen. I'm just not going to accept that. And to be quite honest, those were many of the mistakes that we made in the prior years were mental mistakes. Throwing to the wrong guy, not being prepared. I mean, I made them all myself. I remember reacting to that in a very, in a positive way, like, you know, like take, taking the negative and making it positive. So, you know, we obviously had Eric Davis was our clear cut leader at that time. Uh, we had a tremendous coaching staff. Lou Pinella was a great example for how to play the game. He was crazy fiery. Um, he was very passionate about it. And, you know, I truly believe that the players take on the personality of their manager. At least they used to when I was playing. I don't know if that's the case anymore because managers really don't come out and argue anymore because of replay. And I think that's something that, you know, I, I, I'm glad I'm not playing at this time. I'm glad I was playing at this time when I could hear Lou go out there or Bobby Cox go out there and drop F-bombs on the, on the umpire or, or see Tony LaRusa go out there and litigate his way through an argument out there on the field. So Lou was just really inspirational in that respect. And then we responded 
super well. We had a great team with Paul O'Neill and Chris Sable. Chris Sable had a fantastic year that year. We had some really good starting pitching at that time. I remember Jack Armstrong was a rookie that year. He started the, the all-star game that year. I think he won 16, 18 games that year. We had Jose Rio. We got Danny Jackson. And then, of course, at the back end of that bullpen, we had the Nasty Boys. Those guys were all crazy, and everybody knew it. And they used that to their advantage, and they were dominating games. We had the league going into the sixth inning. It was pretty much over. Um, we had a really good defensive team. I remember Billy Doran came over. We had Mariano Duncan. Those were the second baseman that year. Joe Oliver had a great year. Um, we got Glenn Braggs. He made a big catch. Herm Winningham. We had so many really good players. Joe Oliver, I think I mentioned him. He was awesome. Him and Jeffrey behind the dish. You know, we just, it, it, Louis Quinones coming off the bench, we just had so many different people. And this was the thing. I remember we finished, we started that year in Houston. Traditionally, up until that time, we were the first game of the season starting in Cincinnati being the oldest franchise. And because of the labor dispute that we were having, uh, we, I think we started off late that year and we started in Houston. We won an extra inning game. Uh, I think 13th inning, we win an extra inning game that first game. And then I think we won the first 13 games. And it was amazing how it wasn't just Eric or Paul or Saves or myself. It was everyone each day, like coming up with huge hits. You know, when I look back, excuse me, when I look back at the, the 90 World Series games, you know, Joe Oliver came up super clutch for us so many different times. You know, and driving in Billy Bates in game two and, you know, the saves in game three, hitting two bombs, and then Riho in game four, just shutting them out. I remember just and Tom Browning. We just had so many good players, and we had a lot of fun that year, you know, because Lou was always about, you know, when we're on the clock, it's time to play. But when it, we're not on the clock, enjoy yourself. I mean, he would say it, enjoy yourself. And, you know, and we enjoyed ourselves. So it was just a... It was just a great year. And, you know, were we the best team at that time? On paper, probably not. They had Ricky Henderson. They had Dave Henderson. They had Dave Stewart. They had Conseco and McGuire and all these really great players. But we were the team that was playing the best at that time. And that's what, what happened, and, and that's why we won. Actually, the series before that, the series with Pittsburgh, that was probably the, the – well, that was probably the the, the – better series, at least for the fans, more competition. I mean, not that it wasn't competition. We won 4-0, but uh, we won in game six, I believe it was, in the championship series. So it was just a great year, and we won so many games that year that we, at the end of the day, we were like, how in the world did we win that game? And it would just reinforce the fact that something positive was happening. So it was just, it was just a fantastic year. It was fun. Lou was a huge part of that. You know, Eric Davis, as I said, was our leader. Everybody chipped in. I remember just winning ball games like, man, this is something special because there's no way in the world as we're sitting in the clubhouse afterwards talking, there's no way in the world we should have won that game, but we did. And we're going to win this one tomorrow. So it was a, it was a fun year. No, never, never again played on a team like that other than the 99 team. We, had, we went to the playoffs in 95, got swept by Atlanta after we beat the Dodgers in the National League West. And then in 99, we had a one-game play-in. I think that was the other team that we had some special stuff going on in 99. But 
that 90 team, that was the only time we got a chance to go to the World Series, and thank goodness we were able to bring it home. Yeah, and I think you make the point, you know, were we the best team? Maybe not, but we, we've all played on teams that we were the better team, and, and we find ourselves going home. How could that happen? That's I think that's what makes baseball so unbelievable, that, that at the end, when you have that ring on your finger – and anybody wants to question it, you just kind of look at them and go, well, well, this thing right here says that we were the best team. And and I respect the heck out of it because, you know, I never got to win a world championship. I got to go to World Series. But to win one is so hard. There's been so many great players that, that haven't, you know, got that pinnacle, got that world championship. So uh, it's it's pretty cool stuff. And you mentioned Marge. We'll touch on her a little bit because between the Nasty Boys, Lou and Marge, I mean, we could do five shows. But, uh, you know, I talk still to this day. I, I talk about the the Marge, uh, you know, once a year she'd have a party for us. She'd bring all the zoo animals. And I still have a yeah. lark. I, I got a lark story. Uh, you know, it was that first year I came over. And so, you know, I'm just kind of getting my way through and, and establishing myself. And, and, you know, you being the older, older guy, kind of, I know you were kidding with me, but you kind of looked at me and let me set the stage a little bit. Marge shot invites the entire Cincinnati Reds team to the barbecue and you're expected to be there. It's not one of those, well, I can't make it. No, you're expected to show, especially if you, you have a pending contract and she brings all the zoo animals and the big attraction is the elephants. And these are in her backyard, just in the suburbs of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And Lark turns to me, you know, still, I'm still under his wing at this point. And he says, hey, Booney, you want that multi-year deal? You're going to have to jump up on that elephant. And I'll tell you what, a half hour later, guess who's riding the elephant? Me. Right. <laughs> and right. it, took, it took me two years to get that multi-year deal. But but that was the first piece of advice. And and we've talked about Marge. We could go on forever about that. And, uh, well, that she was an absolute there was only one it just like Lou. I say it all the time. What was Lou Pinella like? They only made one Lou and they only made one, they only made one, one March. Um, that turf in Cincinnati. I, I remember too. You remember as, as a young player, I'm sitting there, you're walking through the clubhouse after a game. You got, you always had your knees. You had ice in your knees, and I used to go, Lark, how old are you? What's going on? And I remember you turned in me, turning to me and go, Booney, you'll see what day. Yeah, and, you know, I was young and spry and, and on that turf and that turf didn't bother me. And I'll tell you, these days, <laughs> that turf bothers me now. But uh, let's move on to your captain. You were one of the few that had the C on his uni. Matter of fact, to this day, I only remember two. They talk about captains. I used to give you a hard time. So there's no captains in baseball. Those are for hockey. But you were a captain. And it wasn't necessarily a captain per se, like in a soccer arena, or it was just kind of a known thing that, that your peers kind of gave to you as like they did with Jeter in New York. But you're the only two that I really know of. What, what, did, what did you take from that? And, and I know, you know, from a player's perspective and from a peer's perspective, it was a, it was a sign of respect. Is that how you took it or, or how did you take that? It absolutely was a sign of respect. Um, it was uh, it was the general manager, it was Jim Bolton, came to me and 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 asked me if I would accept putting the C for captain on my team. And I I, I feel like it was because of obviously my relationship with him 
but my relationship with the players. You know, one thing that I wanted to make sure as a leader in the clubhouse was that the manager didn't have to deal with petty stuff that happened in the clubhouse that we would would uh, kind of police ourselves and deal with the issues so they didn't have to get to a, a certain level. And I think because of the years of doing that, um, Jim Bowden decided that that would be a, a great idea. And, and I certainly, I, I certainly hugely appreciated it. Um, and, uh, and I wore it with pride. Actually, Booney, when he traded you, because I was having conversations with Jim Bowden, and when Jim Bowden traded you, that's actually when I took the C off my jersey. I don't know if you know that or not. And I got a lot of stuff, a lot of negative press for that. But I remember going to him and talking to him about what we were doing in the postseason that you and I, he was going to build the team around you and I. We were going to be the pillars of the organization. And then the next day or next week, he ends up trading you. And it just, I just, I, I was the fit to be tied at that time. Of course, I was still a young man raging on emotion at that time as far as the, where I felt the organization was going. And we were so good together, so good together. It was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to, and this is the conversation I had with him. So you're telling me we're going to build this, this team around Booney and myself. Yes, that's what we're going to do. And of course, things change and whatever. And, and he told me there was, you know, some things that he couldn't control. And, you know, but I was just a fit to be tied. And I actually took the C off my jersey at that particular time because I, I didn't feel like we were all on the same page anymore. The C represented the fact that we were all on the same page, that we were all working together. And it was the respect of the general manager to give to me and, you know, and my responsibility. And I, I don't think I needed the C to be the person that I was in the clubhouse because it didn't really change anything. I think it just reinforced my relationship with all the players and taking people underneath my wing and as did Eric Davis and, and David Concepcion when I came up. So it's just kind of paying it forward, paying it back and, you know, and just being a good teammate. But the, the C was something I certainly was appreciative above. And, you know, and the fact that Jeet and my respect for Jeet, the fact that he was a captain too, you know, that's a good company to be in. Yeah. And, and it's very cool. And, and, you know, I was telling the audience, yeah, I used to tease Lark about there's no captains in baseball, but deep down those players that tease, you know, it, it's, it is a, it's such a high show of respect and such a cool thing that when I, when I would say that to you, it, it you knew that it, it, that, that it was a nothing but a positive thing, but it's something that, that Boone had to say to you. He just had to. It wouldn't be me if I didn't. Exactly. It's just Boone's way. Uh, all right, Lark. Let's talk about uh, shortstops and and how it's changed so much. Yourself, uh, you know, we talked about um, Jeter, Nomar, uh, you know, Cal, uh, A-Rod came along. These, these are prolific, offensive shortstops that play the most demanding position and and in the 90s uh such a premium you know you you could count on one hand or 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 maybe six or seven really elite shortstops in the entire game i'm watching today's game and i did a segment 
you know, a, a few months back and they asked about shortstops. I really started taking a look at the, at the talent in, in 2020 when it comes to that shortstop position. It used to be, you know, I, I think Ozzy kind of set the bar from a defensive standpoint. Like, wow, you pick it like that. Whatever you do offensively uh, is just a bonus. Uh, you took that to a different level and, and you had the defense and the offense on the National League side. You know, I mentioned that Alex and, and Jeter and Nomar in the, in the American League. Cal was kind of the pioneer of, uh, of offensive, uh, offensive shortstops. But today I see, man, I see uh, Story, Tatis, uh, Lindor, Seeger, Torres, Bichette, uh, Correa. I mean, there's so many shortstops that play great defense and hit the ball out of the ballpark. Are you, do you look at the position now and go, wow, it's really changed. And, and to me, it's, it's pretty darn impressive because, because I know what it's like playing that type of demanding defensive position, but to see the offense, uh, you know, from 10, 15, 15 guys in the league to now, I'm awful impressed. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I am certainly impressed as well. Um, but, you know, I think that's just the case all across the field. You know, the, it used to be like the shortstop and the second baseman were, uh, were the offensive weak links, I guess. Uh, and that, you know, that certainly is not the case anymore. I mean, I remember Mark Bell, Bellinger. Um, I'm sorry, Mark Belanger. Um, you know, and, and guys that were before us, our predecessors that were just all glove. And then Ozzy, who was not an offensive minded player, he made contributions offensively, but, you know, it was all about his glove. Um, Ozzy Guillen, um, you know, those guys, they were, they were, they were defense first. And then, you know, and then whatever offense they, they put in there was, was fine. Uh, I felt like that changed uh, kind of dramatically. Um, I think people were always talking about looking for more from an offensive perspective from every position. I think it happened at second base before it happened at shortstop. I remember Jeff Kent. I remember thinking, damn, this dude, you know, this guy's offensive. He's killing it offensively. You were another one of those guys that was an offensive-minded, very good defensive second baseman. And then I think the last position to kind of come up was is the shortstop. And now, I mean, you mentioned Bichette. Uh, this kid, I you know, I managed the Brazilian national team, and he played for me for Brazil. This dude is it. I saw his father play, and his father was like really good. But uh, but Bo Bichette is he is amazing and you know and to be so young and to be so talented growing up in it I think his his level is going to be off the absolute charts you mentioned Francisco Lindor he lives here in Orlando with me we work out all the time Uh, he's another guy that's just a very heavily muscled athlete that has you know all kind of ability from both sides of the plate speed and you know, he tells, he keeps telling me he's going to join me on that 30-30 shortstop club because that's a very elite club. And, uh, but he's got all kind of ability as well. But Correa and Seeger, Seeger's a monster. You mentioned it. I mean, there are a lot of really, really story, a lot of really, really good offensive-minded shortstops that are very, 
very good defensively because that's one thing that you can't compromise. You can't compromise your your defense. So, you know, giving teams more outs by not catching ground balls is a no-no. And all the guys that you mentioned are very solid defensively. And, um, you know, but you know what, Booney, is crazy also because with all the shifting and all, you can go with a bigger shortstop because, you know, rain not as important anymore because of there's so much uh, information that you play guys in certain areas. I mentioned earlier how the instinct is not really developed. You play guys in a certain area, and because he's not a rangy guy, you pay a little more attention to your positioning because you have that information. So, you know, it, it works in different ways. And so I think you can gamble more with an offensive-minded guy because thinking that defensively you can put him in front of the ball with a little more attention to the positioning per some of the analytic information that you have. We, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I talked to a good friend of mine, you know, him. he used to live in Florida with us, Andre Reed hall of fame wide receiver yeah. for the bills. And I had him on the show and, uh, he talked about his, inju- his induction and, and his gold jacket dinner. And, he not that he got emotional about it, but you could tell it, it was a real humbling moment. It was it was pretty cool to listen to his story. And he just talked about how he how he walked into that gold jacket dinner and, and Gail Sayers was there and he couldn't believe what was happened to him from his upbringing to, to where he'd come from to all that he had achieved. He he said he just kind of had a moment where he was by himself and he said I don't belong here or, or how did I get here? And I don't believe that I'm really here. And it was cool to hear the story, uh, you know, because when you get to that level, it's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a level, the hall of fame in baseball, the gold jacket dinner for the NFL. It's, it's a place where not too many people get to go. Did you have, did Barry Larkin have that moment? You know, I know you were inducted in 12 uh, in the hall of fame deservedly so very deservedly so did Barry Larkin have a moment where it kind of all hit you like you know your buddies were telling you the the press was telling yeah Lark you're probably going to get inducted but when it happened did you have that wow moment like yeah you know I kind of thought it might happen but it happened yeah (laughs) yes yes Uh, you know and I don't know if it was just a moment it's just an you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, it's been a it's been a while now since uh, my induction in 2012. But you know, every year I go back up there, and it's really starting to come. Uh, it's it's starting to become more tangible now. It was it was almost like when I got inducted. You know, yes, Ozzy was there and Cal Ripken was there, but my only contemporary at the time was Ozzy Smith. And uh, Roberto Alomar, and that was that was really it. Everybody else was kind of a a decade or so removed from my playing days. I mean, you know, Ricky Henderson was there, yes, and uh, you know, but and, and Nolan Ryan, who I faced, he was there. But you know, just Hank Aaron was there, and you know, and Willie Mays. I, are you serious? I'm in the room with these guys. Was was what it was. The guy from uh, the Reds, Tony Perez, was there, and Joe Morgan was there, and Johnny Bench was there, 
And so I'm sitting there like, whoa, are you, are you kidding me? But now it's my, I see my guys, my guys coming in, not my guys, but guys that I played against, you know, Smoltz and Blavin and Maddox, you know, you mentioned him earlier, Bagwell, Biggio, Junior, you know, Junior and I flew up together to the, you know, to the induction. You know, so I'm seeing all of my, all of Frank Thomas, all of my guys, Andre Dawson, all, all the guys that I played against, that I competed against, that I have history with, that are now sitting in the Hall of Fame. That makes it a little more, I, I, I'd say, palatable, tangible, you know, just tangible. It's just, you know, it's, 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 it's so, it's such an unreal idea but it's it's real and it's like you know i never dreamed of being a hall of famer i certainly dreamed of being a good player i certainly dreamed of playing in the world series and coming up with the big hit and winning the world series i certainly dreamed about being a world champion i world being a an all-star winning an mvp you know, I dreamed of all the physical things that you could control. I remember after my MVP season in 95 and 96, I had a chance to, to hit 30 home runs. And I had never been there before, but it was real. It was tangible. I was working towards something. It was something I can control. I, I mentioned that earlier. You know, it was, it was if I paid enough attention to get into that position and this ball showed up in this area, I knew exactly how to execute my game plan. And I lived that and I controlled that. But the Hall of Fame is like there's there are things outside of your control that you just have to deal with the fallout. And that was one of them. So I remember the first year that I was eligible for the Hall of Fame, I got 50, I think I got 51%. Um, I didn't think I was going to get inducted. I didn't think I was going to get much support at all. I was pleasantly surprised with how much support I got simply because if you looked at my career, I mean, you appreciate my career, Booney, because you saw it every day. But if you just look from the outside and you go, oh, okay, he's a solid player, right? There were so many intangible things that I would do. You mentioned stealing a base late in a ball game when they needed a base stolen or coming up with a hit or a walk or something that helped win a ball game. That's not always the sensational thing. But all these guys that are in this Hall of Fame, at least in my opinion are sensational players and so I was surprised with the amount of support that I got and then the next year I got I think it was 60 some odd percent so it was trending in a very positive way the second year I was surprised yet again and then you know and the people were saying okay well this next year you know there aren't a lot of really strong candidates so that's going to improve your chances on making it because there are certain guys on the ballot guys are off and this that and the other and then I got, uh, you know, I got that push that I don't know what the percentage was, but, you know, over that 75% uh, threshold. And, you know, it was like, oh, my goodness. So it was, you know, it was trending in a positive way and it was tangible in that way. But when I got the call that I was inducted, it was still like, a, are, are you serious? Because the same guy that called me in 95 when I won the MVP award. I was in Mexico, somewhere in the jungles of Mexico, and they couldn't find me. And the same guy that called me in '95 to 
tell me I won the MVP was the same guy that called me, Jack O'Connell was the same guy that called me to tell me that I was inducted into that I received enshrinement in the Hall of Famer, however he crafted it. And, and it was like, I mean, what do you say? Okay, <laughs> thank you. And, you know, and the family, the family sitting there and they're sitting around like, well, is that, does that mean you got in or does that mean you didn't get in? Because I didn't get a call the years I didn't get in. But, uh, you know, it was, it's so, so it's, it's not a moment. It's still, it's just an appreciation. It's just a, it's an unreal, tangible, intangible. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's something you can't control, but it's such appreciated. And it's not just appreciated by, by myself. It's appreciated by fans. It's appreciated by sports writers. It's, impre- it's appreciated by the guys that are in the Hall of Fame. You know, Frank Robinson, unfortunately, he passed. Joe Morgan passed. You know, but those guys, I mean, they were they, they are legends in the game. They did so much in the game of baseball. And to be there with them, it's amazing. I mean, one guy that I still get butterflies is when I'm around him is Reggie Jackson. I call him Sir. And he has been so amazingly supportive to me he's been such he's been like an uncle to me joe morgan i called him uncle joe you know these guys they welcomed me into the hall of fame and they're like you're you're one of us we appreciate you so you know it's like it's it is amazing it i mean just i get goosebumps when i talk about it that's why i go back every single year and, you know, and like I said, now guys like Junior are there with me. Guys like Biggio, who I, who I competed against and competed with. You know, guys like Bagwell, Randy Johnson. I remember Randy Johnson throwing the ball down in my feet and me jumping and swinging at the same time. And he was laughing about it. And we had to laugh about it when we were talking. So, you know, it's, it's crazy how, how now, you know, I was the rookie at the Hall of Fame, but now I'm no longer the rookie. Now I'm not the veteran guy up there, but certainly I'm not the rookie. And it's so nice to see all the guys that I that I played against, that I had so much respect for, that are now getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. I'm just excited to see who who's going to be that next guy, because that next guy, I probably have some personal uh, experience competing against or competing with. So it's it's just, it's, you know, things just come, like you mentioned, you have two kids now or two, two boys now that are getting ready to go into pro ball or, or one son that's getting ready to compete in pro ball. I have a son that's, that played in the NBA and now is playing overseas. You know, it's just like, is this really happening? Because not too long ago, you and I were teammates on a houseboat in Kentucky and you were <laughs> walking in the daggone, on the, on the daggone bus, on the boat. You know, coming into our room like I, I never did that. Going on here? I never did yeah. that, did I? Yeah, right. No, you don't know about it, but you certainly did it. And I will say, supposed to wake up, sleep off it. You're killing me. You're taking all my questions. All right, elaborate on that a little bit. You tell it better than I do. So we went to Lake Cumberland, Kentucky. Myself, Boone, and Hal Morris, and our wives, and. When we're on the houseboat, Boone, as we're sitting around drinking a few uh, bubblies, Boone 
says, hey, I just got to tell you guys something. Uh, I have a tendency to sleepwalk. And so we're like, okay, are we going to, is he serious or not? He was like, you know, dead pan, straight face. You know, I don't really play games. I'm just telling you, this is what Boone does. Boone sleepwalks. So we're like, yeah, whatever. Okay, so after we go outside and we play the human torpedo, so the human torpedo, so we had some jet skis, right? So we got jet skis and then Hal Morris, the professor, you know, he's a physics guy. He's like, okay, I'm going to get on the back of the jet ski, not with like a key, but I'm just going to hold on to the rope. Give me a count of five. I'm going to dive down as far as I can go. And then I want you to gun it. And then I'm going to be the human torpedo. Now, we didn't think about if there was any like kind of rock structures or any kind of trees that might be under the surface of the, the lake or not. And thank goodness there weren't. But Hal Morris would do the human torpedo and we would zip around the jet or on the jet ski on the boat. So we are 100, 100% just exhausted, right? And then we're sitting at nighttime. Everybody's like, okay, that was a great day. I can't wait for tomorrow. What are we going to do tomorrow? Same thing, whatever. Okay, everybody goes to sleep. Three or four or five o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden, I hear something in the hallway. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a houseboat, but, you know, there's like, there's, there's a decent amount of space. And, you know, the, the rooms are kind of spread out at the end of the boat. Well, Boone was on one end of the boat and Larkin was on the other end of the boat. And all of a sudden, Boone starts walking down the hallway into our room. And, you know, and I'm like, and my wife is like, oh, let me cover myself up. And I go, we're having a conversation. And he's kind of like mummified or zombie. What do we do with this dude? And my wife's like, you're not supposed to wake up a sleepwalker, right? So I'm like, well, I'm, I, I don't know what, he might do something crazy. I don't know what he's going to do. So I kind of like take you by the shoulder and just kind of help try to like you walk sleepily walking, whatever, whatever you call it. I think we ended up in the kitchen. And then eventually I think you come to and you're like, oh, well, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what am I doing here? Yeah. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> and that, that's the way. By the way, I've grown out of it. I haven't slept walking years, but yeah, back then I was still doing it. And it's almost if you just talk to me and mock me during it, it you, you, it's actually entertaining because then eventually the the sleepwalker wakes up, realizes that you're just humoring him, kind of feels stupid and, and scurries back into the bedroom. But I always this remember is the that. Problem, though, Boney, this is the problem. We were tied up over water. Yeah. So let's just say, let's just say that you happened to, instead of taking the right turn coming down to my room, you made a left turn and just happened to walk out onto the deck of the boat and then just continue past the rail into the water. Well, no, no, no. You got to understand sleepwalkers. We know we're, we're, we're aware. I could drive a car sleepwalking. You're just, your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you could, you could drive a car, but you just not, you're, you're, ah, it's hard to explain because I used to, you're a zombie, you're a zombie. You know, when I was a kid, you know, I'd be out in the middle, I'd be out in the garage and mom would come down and I'd be getting on my bike. And she'd say, 
you know, she knew not to wait. She wouldn't wake me up, but she's like, oh, Brett, uh, where are you headed? Oh, me and my buddies, we got to, we're going to play some touch football. I'm just headed down the street to the Stoltz's and, and she'd look at me and say, okay, well, is there anything I can help you with? You want a snack or something? Eventually I'd wake up, realize that she's, and I'd be, you feel stupid. And then you just go back to your bedroom and go to sleep. I'm going to tell you what, dog. I was it's scared. funny. I, I, first of all, I didn't believe you when you were telling me you sleepwalk. Because I thought, I really thought that you were messing around. And I was like, okay, so if I hit him and my wife's like, no, 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 don't wake him up. Like, I, you know, I don't know what happens if you wake up a sleepwalker. Do you know what happens if you wake up a sleepwalker? I have no idea. Yeah, I think I've been wake, woken up. It, it's just better to let it play out because eventually we wake up and I, I've kicked we it. Thought, we thought you were just, I thought you were just, you were messing with us like, like, and I didn't, you know, and I was kind of like, uh, okay, you know, I was kind of like, I'm going to give you the business. If you're going to give us the business, I'm going to give it right back to you. And my wife's like, no, 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 no. And I, lo and behold, I, I could not believe, I could not, I don't think we had conversation, but I, I remember, I remember kind of gingerly kind of like, I don't know if I said, let's go to the kitchen, but you, you walked to the kitchen. So, yeah, I guess you were. See, and, and that's the thing. I don't remember any of it. But I remember how funny it was the next day when you didn't realize. I said, yeah, I, I warned you. Don't mind me. Oh, my gosh. That was that was, well, that, that, was, that was awesome. That was amazing. Well, Lark, I want to I thank you for, for coming on here. Awesome to catch up. That was, that was a lot of fun. We covered a lot of stuff. Uh, I know the fans are going to love it. Um, and at the end of every Boone podcast, we have the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, come back in and, and kind of ask a fan question. So he's got a couple more and we'll wrap it up. All righty. Mr. Mr. Larkin, thank you so much for coming on and, and letting me know about that Boone was a uh, sleepwalker. I will, uh, yeah, about I, that. I've never ran into a sleepwalker, but it, it does sound like the freakiest thing you could possibly imagine. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, number one, I was actually at a game that you guys were at. It was, I think it was you. I'm not, Brent, I think you were the, the, uh, with the Mariners at the time. I don't remember what year it was, but it was a Mets versus Cincinnati Reds game. And it had every element of any game I've ever wanted to go to. Rob Dibble threw it a pit, threw it, a, threw it a, a hitter, started a brawl. I'd never seen a brawl before until I was at that game. Pete Rose got tossed. The play by play people were Robin Williams and Billy Crystal. And I just remember the game had like Doc um, Doc Gooden hit a home run and Daryl Strawberry caught like a home run, but it had every element of a game. And I don't remember if you remember that game, but it was like the craziest Mets game I've ever been to in my entire life. Damn, that sounds like a sleepwalking story. Yeah. That, that, in, that, Shea State, in Shea Stadium, right? Shea Stadium. It had the craziest things yeah. in the world. Yeah. He remembers. Yeah. I remember Billy Crystal. I don't remember Robin Williams. But I remember Billy Crystal being in their ball game. They came into the clubhouse and told us that they were going to be doing the game, and they start like doing like this comedy act, and it was it was absolutely amazing. Um, I don't remember Doc Gooden hitting a home run in that game. Um, I remember facing Doc Gooden plenty of times that nightmare. I wish I was sleepwalking at that time. <laughs> I didn't want to remember a lot of that stuff, but uh, he was amazing. I love playing in, in, in Shea Stadium and uh, so much so that I named my daughter after the stadium. Her, her middle name is the Shea. I know Chipper Jones named his child, I think, Shea. 
because of Shea Stadium. Why did you why did you like pl- why did you like playing that stadium so much? What was it about that stadium? I loved, that- I loved playing in Shea Stadium because when I was a kid I wanted to be a fighter pilot. There was something about the roar of the engine that I just absolutely loved and the thrust. I I, I loved that. It was something that I just I just I just wanted to do. Uh, baseball got in the way of that, and I'm glad <laughs> it did. But uh, you know, it, it worked out okay. But it was, uh, you know, I had a couple of chances to go to Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and didn't get a chance to fly with the Blue Angels, but was, had a chance to kind of see all the stuff behind the scenes. Uh, that's in Cincinnati, by the way, Dayton, Ohio, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. But you know, the Blue Angels are there, and just it was something that I was always captivated by. So. When I went to Shea Stadium, two things, the energy of the fans and the energy of the planes flying overhead coming to and from LaGuardia. I absolutely loved it. And it was just, it it just kind of, it just felt like there was just so much energy, just the energy of New York in particular, the fans in New York, uh, the interaction with the fans in New York. I, I, I remember Buddy Bell telling me, Mark, when you play in New York, just don't ignore the fans. Have fun with them, laugh with them, this, that, and the other. And I was like, okay. So I remember one of my early games that I played in Shade Stadium, and I want to say it was Frank Viola that was pitching. And uh, I remember I came up on deck. Now, this was my first or second year, and uh, a few fans in the, in the crowd were getting on me. Hey, Mark, can you suck? And I was like, you're looking at them like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then the dude said, hey, Larkin, you suck. You can't hit Frankie. But, you know, he had another, he had a couple of different, you know, flowery words in there. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, whatever, man. And he was like, oh, yeah, man, they were getting on me. And I remember Buddy Bell telling me, just have fun with them and don't ignore them. So I was just kind of shaking my head like, yeah, yeah, I know. I think blah, 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 blah. Went up my first at bat, got out. Came up to hit the second time, and the fans were on me again. I told you you can't hit Frankie. You suck. You this, that, and the other. Now, yeah, 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 yeah. I hit a double off the wall, right? So then I come in, I score, and you know, and the guys are giving me the business as I'm walking back to the dugout. Third time I get up to bat, Frankie is still on the mound, and the and the fan says, "Hey, Larkin." Well, I guess you can't hit Frankie. And I start shaking my head like, you're damn right I can hit him. And then he said, but you still suck. And I start dying laughing, right? And it was ever since that, that was early in my career. And then ever since that time, ever since that event, every time I would go to Shea Stadium, I would look for those guys and they would be sitting in the same area. And the, the, the participation in the crowd just got bigger and bigger and bigger till to the fact that later in my career, I would go over and give them sunflower seeds and gum from the dugout. Like, oh, can you give me some chew? I'm like, yeah, I'll work on that. And I bring them some chew and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And, you know, oh, it was just an absolute fun time. And I played well there. I enjoyed it there. I loved the energy of the crowd. I loved the energy of the, the their airplanes. I just loved it. And that's, that's why I love, that's why I love Shea Stadium. It was just so much energy that I really had such a positive reaction to it. Just it just felt good when I went there. I was so excited about playing in 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 Shea Stadium. Now, you know, David Cohn changed that a little bit. You know, Doc Gooden changed that a little bit. You know, but uh, 
I, I certainly enjoyed, I loved playing a shake stick. Well, Barry, we want to thank you for coming on once again and jumping on the Boone Approved Podcast. And for those out there, if you want to go ahead and follow him on Twitter, he is on Twitter at Barry Larkin, all one word, one name. Once again, thanks for everyone for subscribing, commenting, being on the ground floor of this podcast that continues to grow leaps and bounds, just like Boone's golf game. And if you want to go ahead and follow Brett on any of the social medias, please do. You can hit him up on Twitter at TheBoon29 and follow him on Instagram and Facebook. You can find him over there as well. For the former Golden Glover, Silver Slugger, All-Star, and former Sleepwalker, Brett Boone, I'm Dan Levy. We'll see you guys next time right here on the Brett Boone Podcast. So long and see you guys soon. Peace.